0: You're listening to a seat at the tech table, a podcast by Sisters in Tech, hosted by Anna and Esther Coferigi. This podcast highlights the experiences of black women working and thriving in the tech industry. You'll learn about how they found their path into tech, and hopefully, you'll be inspired to consider whether there's a seat for you at a tech table.
1: Welcome, Jessica. Hi. Hi. Thank you so much for joining us today. Okay, so um, we would love you to introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about yourself.
2: Sounds good. Hi, hi, folks. Um, My name is Jessica Udo. I am Nigerian, born and raised. Shout out. Um, I currently am based out of Vancouver, Western Canada, and I work for Microsoft as a program manager on an internal data insights platform um i've also recently been elected as the chair for the africans at microsoft employee network and that kind of goes to show my interest in making impact on the continent which i also do volunteering my time with the african impact initiative um i'm going to pause there um but yeah that's me (laughs) excited to jump
0: into each and every one of those things um I'll hand over to Anne. Yeah, so you've given us a little bit about your background, but tell us a bit more. How did you develop an interest into tech?
2: Oh, that's a funny one. Um, To me, it was the cliche, you know, growing up, my dad had this one desktop computer. And I think at the time we were mostly playing games or doing something on Excel that felt like playing games. And then, you know, uncles and aunties would always be like, you know, she should go into computers and software and, and tech. And to be fair, I didn't really know what it was per se at the time. Um, but over time, you know, high school took some computers studies classes. And then when it was time to apply for university, I just applied. Um, I think at the time my dream was, Hey, let's go work in Silicon Valley and work for Microsoft and Google, etc., etc. So, Yeah, it was that cliche, people see the potential in you, which although cliche is very key, especially in developing a child's interest and esteem. And, you know, I think that that was that was my turning point, I guess, for my interest in tech. That's
1: super interesting. I, I want to dig into that a little bit. So, you you spoke about having a computer at home, but how do you make that connection? So, having a computer in the, in the home, connecting to all of these tech companies that exist in the world, like how did that become real to you?
2: Man, uh, you know, I feel like it's really funny. Because at the time, that one computer was everything. (laughs) Um, And I feel like that might show my age a bit, but I imagine most people listening are probably in the same Gen Z generation or, you know, millennials. Um, But yeah, just seeing how using a computer was so, like, opening in terms of connecting with people and connecting with the world and doing things that you couldn't do as easily before. Um, To be fair with my dad's computer and I don't think there was as much penetration in high schools at the time or even primary schools Um, but luckily you know my school had computer classes and I remember it being interesting because the the class would ask things like a label a keyboard or a monitor and I was just like you know can we learn about how this was built and anyway that's not I don't want to I don't want to insult <laughs> <The academic laughs> I went through. But, but that being said you know I think for me it just sparked a curiosity that I wanted to learn more I wanted to see more to do more and knowing that this was one two to doing that was really exciting at the time
0: So you've kind of spoken a little bit about your school, how that kind of impacted your um, journey into your interest in tech. But like, did did your academic background play a role in developing your interests?
2: Yeah, I think for me it was less my academic background and more my non-academic interests. And and I'm saying that to say that, you know, a lot of the courses I took were the same courses most people were taking. You know, physics, most science students were taking, uh, math, physics, chemistry, um, as well as some social sciences courses, of course. But at the same time, I think for me, it was really those summer, like, boot camp type things that I forced Mm. my dad to take me for. um, Learning how to use Microsoft Word and Excel at home which at the time felt like a game, um, or even just like some random computer games that, you know, there are whole studies on how games help with with the child's development, right? So I'd say that really was what veered me on that path much more than my actual academic background, at least pre-university anyway, so...
1: Cool. So, so what did you study at university? What was that experience?
2: Yeah, so I ended up going in for software engineering. Um, and midway, I switched to electrical because at the time there was a running joke in my family that the best engineers, the best software engineers or founders did not study software engineering. <laughs> um I don't fully agree with that but um eventually (laughs) i did electrical and software because i wanted something else in my in my belt um and yeah i went to mcgill it's right there in the background shout out mcgill students wherever you are it's in quebec in canada it's a great school yeah
1: cool and I'm, i'm really intrigued by people's um university experiences especially studying um Kind of the computer sciences, the software engineering, and electrical engineering, how did that prepare you, or how did that kind of maybe inspire you to maybe take this route, or or if it didn't, I'd love to know that as well.
2: Yeah, I mean, it definitely did, and I think it's it's very on theme that the name of this podcast is A Seat at a Tech Table, with Sisters in Tech, but um I think for me, the interest in tech was already there, right? So the the thing that I felt my tech degree showed more was the disparity in gender in tech. Um, And when I look at a lot of my eventual life ambitions, (laughs) um, they kind of stemmed from that place of this is what my experience was like. And this is why I want to bring more representation and more inclusion and more kind of trust in often overlooked people or founders or engineers. Right. So I loved my program. That's not to say I didn't. And I think the fact that there were very few women meant that we're all very close. Um, so I would not necessarily take that back, but of course, it's always better if you feel, you know, more represented.
1: <laughs> so yeah. No, no, we d- we definitely understand that, yeah. and it's definitely <laughs> a motivation for the post- podcast. So yeah, thank you for sharing. Um, I guess I'd love to know kind of the end of your university career. So. You're about to embark upon the, the big world. How do you feel like your university prepared you to enter the jobs market? And do you feel like your skills were kind of immediately transferable at that point?
2: Yeah, I mean, my initial response is yes. And I, I think I'm going to slow down a bit and think this through, especially because I know, you know, there is an ongoing conversation Around, especially for tech, around micro degrees versus university degrees. So I want to be, I guess, as I wouldn't say cautious, but more holistic when I when I answer this question. Um, yes, it prepared me. I think, especially given the fact that it wasn't just building myself academically, but building myself as a person. You know, moving so far away from home and learning to be self-sufficient and learning how to work in groups and how to ask for help and, you know, be disciplined and responsible, etc., etc. et, cetera, et cetera. Um, And then with regards to the courses, I, I feel like maybe 5% was transferable. Um, and wow. Not in a bad way, just in a, <laughs> my major was electrical, right? And now I'm a product manager in a software company. So even if I studied software, I'm not a software programmer, right? So even that in itself would not be fully transferable. Um, but, you know, university did teach me how to learn and it did teach me how to um, work in groups, work in projects, how to think through assignments. And I think especially for PMs, that, that is such an interesting skill, right? Because I think as a programmer... Technology stack changes a lot. Yes. But you can get to that point where, you know, you're fully confident. This is my stuff. I know what I'm doing. Boom. As a PM, you could be confident in your product skills, but you can't really be confident about the product, right? Because you're always trying to innovate and Mm -hmm. innovating means you need to be curious, it means you need to talk to people other than yourself, your wise old self. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that skill of being open to learn and grow is something that amongst my life experiences, university really helped me with. Because, I mean, we all had those courses that it seemed good and you understood what was going on. And then you see the test or the project or the assignment and you're just like, what is this? <laughs> <laughs> um so from that point of view, I, you know, I I think there were some transferable skills from university to the workforce. Yeah.
0: Also, so right after university, what what was your first job?
2: Microsoft as a program manager.
0: Okay.
2: Yeah, that's a funny <laughs> story. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, tell us tell us a bit about how you got your
2: job yeah um that is a funny story i i think that and this is pretty interesting because i once quite recently maybe six months ago went to a career coach um and and she said perhaps you have to dream bigger in terms of what i want for my career which you know i wouldn't necessarily get into all the conversation but it, i had told her the story of graduating and you know, in my head, I was going to get a job in tech and then go for an MBA and then find myself in Silicon Valley somehow at Microsoft or Google. And, as, and I've said those two a lot, but there are lots of other great tech companies. Um, and then somehow I got the job right after university. And then I met this career coach and I was like, what do I do now? <laughs> How did I get the job? Uh, I it, 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 it was pretty much just God. (laughs) I don't know if this is a a platform for that, but... um, Always, um, (laughs) always. (laughs) (laughs) I remember even just the the entire process and how it came together. Um, I'd gone for an event organized by um, a group on campus called Powi, um, Promoting Opportunities for Women in Engineering. And I went for this event with Microsoft office in Montreal and I saw people that I had gone to school with, you know, in a Microsoft shirt. Wow. And I'm just like, you know, if you could get the job, maybe I should apply. Like at the very least, I should put in an application, right? <laughs> like, um, But of course at this time, you know, I'm just like, nah, like, there's no way it's not going to happen. <laughs> um so I applied, I think the deadline was even like that night. So it was very, wow. but the good thing is Microsoft doesn't ask for, at least at the time, didn't ask for a cover letter. So it wasn't like I had, you know, six hours to put together this amazing application. It was just a CV, which was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Cause I was like, thank you. <laughs> um, so yeah, I applied for, for an entry-level engineering position. And I think the interviews were scheduled within like two weeks. So I didn't even have enough time to prepare. So that's why like I'm like, yeah, God was really doing his thing. Um uh so yeah, I have I have that interview. I think based on how I answered the questions, the interviewer had asked if I had considered any of the product slash program roles. Mm. Um and this was kind of the first time I was hearing of that at Microsoft. So I knew the PMs, I just always imagined that there were people that got MBAs and had been in tech for years um I wasn't aware at the time that there were entry-level PM roles at Microsoft so that was interesting to me I was like yeah sure why not um and then I had like t- another two weeks to prepare <laughs> for that interview learning about PM for the first time right so you know, it, it all came together really well Because to be fair, that was entirely my favorite interview um, They fly you out, they keep you in hotel Obviously pre-COVID, apologies <laughs> to everyone applying now <laughs> um, And, and it's, a, it's a circuit of meeting with different people, different PMs And I, I think that leading up to that You know, just knowing how much I wasn't prepared and how much I had to rely on, because giving little time to prepare, right? I had to rely on my innate self. Like, okay, you've got this, you're smart, you've been through McGill, you know, like, you know, you know what you're doing. Don't get too nervous. And obviously my network, right? So even just applying, I had reached out to the person I saw at the event to said, hey, how did you do this? Like, I want to work here too, bro. <laughs> um uh, and even just the interview as well, right? Reaching out to people that had the title on LinkedIn and um, having conversations with them. I think that I wouldn't recommend that to anybody who asks me about jobs right now. I'll always say, you know, do your thing, research, buy the Cracking the PM interview book, <laughs> um, it worked for me because I don't
1: know what was happening but yeah that was my story um, Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think that's such um, an inspiring story really and so many levels I think the overall story is really interesting because it's one thing I'm always trying to tell people is just to put yourself in the game slightly mm-hmm. so you applied for one role but mm-hmm. you, through that role, you went on a journey into another role. And I think that's um, a part of so many people's stories that you think you're going in one direction, but yeah. what you're really doing is your momentum is taking you forward and then you find another direction as you're going. But if you didn't apply for any of them, you wouldn't have yeah. got any of them. So mm-hmm. I think that that's a really um, powerful message to take from um the other thing i love and i think we talk about a lot is you just spoke about kind of reaching out to your network whether it's that person you saw at the event um people you you know kind of from your extended network and also kind of just reaching out on linkedin to people who had that title and seeing if you could connect with them um i'd love for you to talk a bit more about kind of the power of the network
2: i think that's what we call it but yeah it's so true Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah no that is that is very very key um and I think that most people want to help, right? I don't think I don't necessarily mean, or rather, that doesn't necessarily mean that everybody has capacity to help, right? Because I, if someone doesn't reply me on LinkedIn, my initial thought is not this person hates me; it's more they're too busy to see my message, right? Which, which I guess is fair. Um, but if they do reply, I think most people, in my experience, want to help. Um, And of course, the hack is to reach out to people who you have something in common with, whether you went to school with them or you know them from someone, because having that in your intro always kind of helps. And I mean, for people like me, if I see another black female student reaching out to me on LinkedIn, even if it's the worst... (laughs) I probably shouldn't say this, but even if it's the worst entry like entry message, I will most definitely reply because I'm just like, I want to create spaces for us. Like, yes, reach out mm-hmm. to me. Um, so I guess that's another hack. Um, but, but that being said, I, I think the network really helps even just possibilities of what's, like opening your, your mind up to the possibilities mm-hmm. of what's possible. Um, it's very important because if I hadn't met that person at school, you know, in a very random way, um, I might have seen him at the event and just didn't know or wouldn't know who this guy was, right? But we had taken classes together, we would worked on assignments together, we didn't know that this would eventually translate to this. Um, and I think that's very interesting because people always think of networking or mostly think of networking as like meet, meeting people who are above you who are managers who are directors, whatever, um, but there is or there should be an emphasis as well on the vertical aspect of things, because these are the future, you know, managers and directors mm-hmm. and CPPs. And you, it's a lot easier to build those connections now when you're all just in the grind together. Um, mm-hmm. so I guess that's the other part of networking that I think is very key or was very key for me anyway.
0: So um, you've kind of mentioned quite a few times uh, the role of a PM. I guess this is more so for people who don't know what that role is, could you kind of just give a bit of a breakdown to exactly what you do what what is, what does PM stand for
2: and things along those lines? Yeah yeah Um, so I guess when I say PM as a Microsoft employee the job title says program manager um, but for the for this conversation, I would refer to myself as a product manager rather than program manager. Um, and there is a slight nuance in the actual wording, but my day-to-day is very much a product manager day-to-day. So that's why I'm gonna stick to that. Um, generally, you know, product managers or PMs for short, typically are responsible for defining what comes next for a product. Um, so when you think of what new features to roll out or do we need to do some kind of migration to a new platform or a new experience for our customers, which sometimes is, you know, for innovative purposes, but sometimes it's just some tool is being, you know, discarded. <laughs> Or or sunsetted, right? So there's a lot of different, similar, different but similar tasks going on. My day to day consists of meeting with customers to understand and clarify some of their requirements, um, spending some focus time to try to synthesize it all and put together some kind of one pager or presentation, um, meeting with my engineering team to discuss what's on our backlog, what's coming up, um, maybe even get some more insights on what it would take to run a feature. Um, There's also my managers or other stakeholders who often depend on our product, but are not necessarily, I guess this is very rare, but they may not necessarily need a feature right now, but they just need to be kept updated on what's coming up or what it would take to get XYZ in for them. So I would say that I spend a good eighty to ninety percent in meetings. <laughs> um, I try to I try to block out time to work, of course, but that's rare as a PM. <laughs> There's a lot of meetings, um, but good meetings, you know, very productive. Whether it's scoping stuff out, or discussing requirements, or user interviewing, design scoping, design thinking, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera.
1: okay so you've told us a bit about your role tell us kind of a bit about your average day so um obviously we're all in kind of we're sort of still in lockdown or at least in work from home mode most of us at the minute um I'm not sure if you're back in the office but yeah tell us what kind of a typical day looks like for us
2: for you Mm -hmm. yeah um I am working from home right now thankfully just putting that out there um but my (laughs) day-to-day I'd say typically starts out with a 9 a.m. team stand-up, um, which is mostly an opportunity, you know, for folks to talk about what's what they're working on, what's top of mind, any blockers, any updates coming, or, you know, big, big points to discuss, etc. Typically takes less than 30 minutes, um, except, you know, there's something really big at the time. Um... And then I would say there's probably an hour or two of stakeholder conversations, whether it's meeting with my LT for some feature approval um, or presenting an experience review that we're trying to get insights and feedback on or, you know, people coming and trying to understand what the product does and how they could leverage it for a unique scenario. Because that happens a lot, especially for internal products like the one I work on. Um, and then I, I would say there's probably like another three hours of customer conversations, whether that is a new requirement, a new feature, or again, customer demo type meetings. You'll be surprised how often that happens. Um, I think that personally, there's stuff that I may need to work on to reduce that, whether it's better documentation or having videos out there that people could use. But I do personally enjoy meeting with them, so I'm not that pressed. <laughs> um because you know, in talking about a feature, you are also getting sentiments on how they like your product, how they use your product, um, what where their heads at in terms of certain features that you're trying to run, would it be useful for them? So, you know, it's a win-win for both of us. <laughs> um and then I'm guessing there's probably like an hour left-ish. Mm-hmm. i probably spend that time writing emails, putting together spec documents, um, maybe, I don't know, arranging the backlog, prioritizing the features in the backlog, stuff like that. But yeah, that is, that is a very conservative eight hours. <laughs> there mm-hmm. are lots of- there are a lot of non-8 hour days <laughs> wow. but I'll stop there
0: <laughs> okay we've got a bit of a sense of what a typical day looks like but what would you say your work
2: workplace culture looks like or what is oh, your workplace culture? yeah no I disclaimer Microsoft is a huge company so everyone's experience might not be the same um I'd say for myself, it's, it's pretty good in the sense that, you know, with, I mean, before the pandemic as well, but especially with the pandemic, lots of people are more empathetic. Like, and I'd say maybe because I work on an internal product also, there's a lot more flexibility around a lot of things. Um, But that being said, lots of people are very empathetic. There is, although most people would admit that they work more than eight hours, yikes um it's not encouraged it's not encouraged at all in fact sometimes i message my manager past 5 p.m and she just would not reply until the next day and i know she's online you know like i know you're online (laughs) but she just doesn't want me to feel like it's required right for my Mm. job um i also think something else that's really key is the collaboration Mm. i don't think there are many people who work isolated especially on product teams um And one of the big things that Microsoft encourages is, I forget how it's phrased right now, but it's it's the whole idea of building from the work of others or building something that impacts other people. Like when I say people, I don't mean customers, I mean other teams within the company or within your product group. Because that reduces the amount of duplicate effort that goes into stuff. Mm-hmm. significantly. Um, and if you think of the fact that you're working at one of the best companies in the world, with some of the best minds, why would you not wanna, you know, speak with them? <laughs> mm-hmm. Um so yeah, there's that there's that culture of just bouncing ideas of people, whether it's at the quick 30 minutes meeting, like, you know, unofficially or even just officially as a mentor, that happens too a lot. Um, so it's it's a great work culture for me, and at least for my product team. So, yeah, I hope that answers your question. If there's more, I could say. <laughs>
1: yeah, it's definitely. Um, yeah, it's definitely good to hear. Yeah. I just want to, if you're happy to, and, and it's fine if if um, you can't speak too much. But if you could tell us a bit about your product and the product that you work on and the nature of it, and yeah, what it's like to work on that kind of product
2: yeah um, so the product I work on is a data insights platform which is a pipeline of data collectors that pretty much collect data for the entire company um, as well as a layer for building ML or just regular automation to derive insights from the data
1: Mm
2: -hmm. Um, and I mean, it's internal, but it's not necessarily a secret, so I'm fine to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but right now, obviously, because of how much people are becoming more aware about how data is used, yeah. is not a product that will be taken public so easily. Um, mm-hmm. I also don't think that that many companies will just be like, yeah, like you can keep all our data. <laughs> <laughs> um, so taking it public would definitely mean some kind of um, rearchitecture such that whatever data is collected is not tied to Microsoft in any way, mm-hmm. and that is a whole beast of itself because this no, was built for Microsoft, right? Um, but anyway, that's the context there why why it's internal. But that being said, I, I I actually wasn't always on this team, and I remember when I made the decision to move, it was very much because I personally felt like data was the future, and I and I still do. Um. But more particularly, I feel like data is the the future for product management. Mm. Um, And I have a mentor also at Microsoft who always says that um, as a PM, obviously, it's very important to develop hypotheses. And then how do you test that? By talking to customers. But realistically, especially for a company as big as Microsoft, You can't talk to every customer, right? So the next best thing is to look at the data. Um, But of course, this is very much not necessarily one of those quotes that you just slap on and just follow data blindly. (laughs) I think this should be taken in context, right? Like, what's the first thing, your hypothesis? Like, it is very hard. And I think that's a mistake people make with data sometimes to just... Use that to make very big decisions without understanding the context around the data. So not just where is this data from. I also care about how it was collected. I also care about what the hypothesis you're trying to test is. Um, and 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 you know, for me, I find that if you if you're able to really put that color and that story around the data, then it makes sense to make decisions based on that. Um, but I've also seen people, especially when you're just starting out and you're just trying to get your hang of data, um, you know, you just you see a number and like, oh, yeah, that's that, you know, but that's that's that. So, and I can give many interesting scenarios. Like oftentimes we're, we're gauging things and, and tracking things. And then we ask ourselves, but is this even the best metric to track? Because following this number, you could do X, Y, Z but is that really the best metric to track? Like, are you sure you shouldn't test like, other things? Like, And that's, that's the context and the story and the hypothesis that I think should always be considered along with the data. And I'm trying not to give specific examples because it is all internal, but I guess you, you, you kind of get the point, right? Um, or even just now with all the bias in, in AI training, right? Because it's all data, it's just... What data is this? Mostly white heteroman. How can you say that that fits the bill for your user base that consists of blacks, Hispanics, indigenous folks, queer people, you know? Um, So when I say data is future, I want to put that with an asterisk and then all (laughs) the stuff I just said following that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, I think that's so important, especially for kind of the product manager role. I think all of us, (laughs) speak for myself and some others, we need to kind of work on our our data muscle and our data understanding muscle, because it it is really key to kind of building good products across the board. So
0: thanks so much. Okay, I just want to pick on something, because you said that you have a mentor. Um, Are you able to tell us a little bit about how that came about and the value
2: of that relationship? Oh, man, I have various mentors (laughs) and I I encourage people to have various mentors, too. Um, (laughs) But I'm trying to think if it's better to talk about one particular path or just the general, because each one is different. Right. Um, So there are mentors that I have that are people that I, I saw what they were doing and I liked what they were doing and I thought that there's something specific I want to learn from them um especially the mentor that I'm talking about with data so he works at Microsoft as well and on one of our sister teams and I just observed that whenever he gave presentations or experience reviews he was very holistic with regard to the data right and that was a skill that I thought I wanted to build so I had a project I was working on at the time for, you know, a feature. And I said, I'd, I'd reach out to him. I just like have a recurring meeting where we just talk about what we're seeing, what data we could add or incorporate, what kind of telemetry we want to incorporate in the future, or even just how do we use this data to decide on the next thing to do, right? Um, so I think that's one way to, to find mentors based on topic areas you want to develop. I also think that there is space for finding mentors based on positions you want to grow to. Um, so if you're a junior PM, and you're trying to get to senior or principal, and you know every company might have a different phrase or word for the levels, um, but it will be key to have a mentor who has done that journey and who has scaled to the next level or two levels above, so that they can tell you and teach you and advise you as you try to get there as well. Um, I think for those ones, pretty similarly, I find someone or I hear of someone who was in the same position and, you know, I just reach out again. Most people want to help. I don't think every reaching out always works out. <laughs> like there are some people you'd meet and they just know that, you know, we just don't have the same rapport <laughs> and you can't force those things. Right. And, it's not to say they're a bad person or you're a bad person. It's just that sometimes you, you want someone that you can connect with on certain levels and you just can't with this person. And don't get me wrong, this is not about you know gender or, or race or anything. Um, I have very diverse people in my network. Um, but it, it could be about how you think through things. Um, it could be about... How pushy you are on certain things, and and it, it's sometimes good because their mentors were very much you know teaching you how to stand up for yourself. So there's a, there's a fine line there, but maybe for you it's a deal breaker. Maybe you just don't want someone who's always telling you do this do, do this in this particular way, and you're like, hey, can we talk about other things? Um, so yeah, I, I think for me th- those those are the general themes of a mentorship that I I have found. In my experience.
1: No, thank you so much, because it's, for me, I really did pick up those kind of, I guess, at least two touch mentors. So the skill-based mentors, so a skill or capability that you want to kind of develop, and then a position mentor, so the person you want to kind of get to the position of. That's mm-hmm. very helpful, so thank you so much for that. Um, I want to track back to something you uh, mentioned right at the beginning. So you said um, you talked about the Africans at Microsoft group. So and can um, impact so let's start with the first
2: one, Af- Africans at Microsoft tell us more about that Sounds good, now we're getting into fun stuff um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, Africans at Microsoft is an employee network at Microsoft for Africans at Microsoft or allies <laughs> um, I think right now our membership distribution list is about 1200 people Across multiple continents. Um, there are official chapters in the US, in Canada, Ireland, Lagos, Kenya, South Africa. Um, I feel like I'm missing one more. Um, but there are also unofficial groups who join from various other places, including the UAE and um, Southern America. So, for me when i joined microsoft i wanted to meet it actually started pretty selfishly so i had a lot of mentors at the time but i didn't have a black female mentor <laughs> um and i just wanted to meet more black female mentors or tech people um and and there are lots of black female people i know at microsoft now especially in the entry level um and at most senior positions, there are fewer of them in tech. Mm-hmm. Like, there are lots of them in marketing, in finance, you know, account management, etc. But anyway, that's another story. Um, and it's getting better, I would say. I think it is definitely getting better. But the time I joined, that was the reason why I, I, I found the Amstel Group. Um, anyway, so for me, the community has been there for me when you know I was new and fresh-eyed and fresh-faced and and wanted to meet people who, who had shared interests shared experiences and you know they also host a lot of social events so it was a fun way to especially coming from because I moved from Montreal to Vancouver for my job so I also wanted to just meet friends right like mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then over time you know I, I was just very involved because I really believed in what they were doing and this year as of July July um, I was elected as chair so wow. now I've seen that it's not just fun and games
1: <laughs> 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 um,
2: so there is a lot uh, that goes into you know a community like that including how do you show up for people who are going through stuff whether it's mm. Uh, a performance review or having difficulty onboarding in a new role or, you know, the HR for Microsoft is trying to get more diverse people in their pipeline and, of course, the first people that are going to reach out to are Blacks at Microsoft, Africans at Microsoft, um, because as a group, we, we we do have, or we should be the voice for other people and they could also advise on, okay, this is where we are and this is where to find us, right? So now I'd say that it's definitely a mix of fun and games as well as the opportunity to make a real change for, you know, Africans at Microsoft. Um, and I'm just starting out. So I haven't really fully defined what that would be for me yet, but there are a couple of ideas. Um, so we shall see, <laughs> we shall see.
1: That's super exciting. And, and congratulations yeah. um, on, on becoming the chair. And um, we'd also love you to speak a bit about the African Impact Initiative um, that you mentioned. Yeah, Tell us more.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so African Impact is a nonprofit consisting of Africans in the diaspora, mostly, who wanted to give back in some way I feel like a lot of our friends in the diaspora feel this way where we want to be able to contribute to something on ground but we're just not sure the best way to go about that um and it actually started out while like the founder was still a university student right so for him it was very much a I guess, a, a hill to climb. <laughs> um, but that being said, initially was the, I don't want to say cliche, but the very common way of fundraising and going back to do projects, whether that is at a hospital or building a clean water borehole in a community, etc., etc. Um, and then we found that it was very hard to be for these projects to be sustainable, and this probably in part goes to the fact that I wouldn't say Africa, but Nigeria anyway has a huge problem with maintenance. Um, there are lots of infrastructure that are built, and it looks very, very good, but two years, three years, and it's just At least paint the damn thing, you know? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So I guess what we eventually transitioned to doing was to empower the people on ground to build these things themselves because that way we're hoping that they're more inclined to maintain this because this is not just their own but could also potentially be their source of living, right? Mm -hmm. So you know, this is, if this is where you get your money to feed your family, I think you're not a manipulative way, but just in the general human nature way. It's like, this is your project, right? This is yours. Um, so, you know, eventually that also mutated into some kind of fund that invests in often overlooked first time founders, okay. um, so we find, or we found, when we did our own, you know, market analysis, that typical VC funds are looking for people with experience and a very solid track record, because that often indicates that they would return some profit on the investment. Um, whereas for people who are first-time founders who are in schools it's a lot harder to get the money to build um so yeah that's that's what we do now uh trying to have a more inclusive tech entrepreneurship space by investing capital as well as capacity building to first-time founders who are often overlooked and often university students as well um So yeah, uh, at African Impact, I am the program manager, which means that I work with the team to define what our offering for this fund is in terms of what does that capacity building side look like, what key partnerships need to happen, um, what is in the curriculum to help them refine on their startup, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah.
1: That's amazing work and amazing stuff. And I think it feels like the story of Black women in this tech space that (laughs) we're never just doing our day job. Mm. There's always all the other things. And kind of to that point, how do you rest? (laughs) How do you kind of take care of yourself in the midst of all of these amazing things that you're doing?
2: i'm gonna answer this question but i am also <laughs> gonna say something before i say this um mm-hmm. i think you're right i think that especially as as a minority in tech it often feels like the work to change it rests on you mm-hmm. in addition to your day job um with which you are sometimes not compensated for you know this additional work um i personally have not always been okay with that Especially the fact, especially given the fact that I think, to some degree, I wanted to be a very good product manager, and I just felt that you know dividing my interest in that way means I am giving less time to building my product skills. But I, I attended a conference recently um, last year. It was virtual, and I think it was organized by some kind of women in tech group. Mm-hmm um and it was pretty much you know discussing about the hardship of the year and everything and this was the year that george floyd died right so yeah i'm like okay of course that's a hardship <laughs> um so i'm I'm sitting at this conference and i'm listening in and you know they're talking about ageism in tech which yeah it's a good thing is that's why a big thing sure um, there's obviously the, the, the stress for women in the fact that a lot of women are homemakers so when things when your kids can't go to school you have to take care of your kids take care of the home and do your job so another very big issue um, and there are all of these other things, and I, I did not hear any racial um, conversation at all which sometimes is intentional right? I don't expect a group of non-black people to know how to talk about this stuff Right. Um, but I do expect that if you're advertising yourself as an inclusive space for women in tech, you should know that in your group, there will be some black women in tech. <laughs> mm. um, and in that moment, I just realized that if, if if we don't tell them, if we don't do this work, it might not get better. Um, mm. It really might not, because I don't think I, I think they want to do it. I think I think most people Again I'm, I might just be a very optimistic person, but I do think most people want to be good, and I think most people understand yeah. that it was a hard year for black people everywhere i I felt that they just didn't know how to best address this um, and so I guess for me, that was my turning point. It was like, well <laughs> yeah we're gonna do this work <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and I would say i've been I've been very lucky i've been very blessed i I am in a very supportive team, so my manager my director, they all know what I do. Um, and it's not seen as an added work on top of my job. It's seen as part of my job. Um, mm-hmm. So in addition to Outrooms at Microsoft, I also am the diversity and inclusion champ for my organization at Microsoft, which consists of at least 500 people. Um, so there is a lot of work that goes into... Having these key discussions, planning these key programs, um, talking with other groups within cloud and AI at Microsoft, because um, each group has their own, you know, DNI champ, and we try to work together and, and bring programming that works across our teams. Again, trying not to duplicate work. Right. Mm-hmm. So, I would say, you know, I, I'm I i do not think it's everyone's experience, but that has definitely helped in terms of finding ways to rest because I know that I'm well supported so I don't I don't feel pressured to work 40 hours as a p.m and 40 hours as a DNI expert right <laughs> um, so yeah how do I rest how do I find time to rest um yeah I don't have a good answer for that one <laughs> we, 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 we would rest when we die JK yeah. um. But, yeah, no, I, I do I do definitely take time to rest. I think that I mostly work greater than 40 hours, but I try not to make it the norm. Um, so after work, you know, I could be hanging out with friends. I have a good friend group here, and I'd often hanging out with them, games night, food, etc. Um, I'm actually going over tonight to finish Insecure because, you know, the week comes out on Sunday, and we started rewatching that. Oh, wow. So... We're going to finish the last episode tonight, and then tomorrow we move. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, so, yeah. Um, and then weekends, you know, I, I try to chill. I grab brunch with some people or go for a massage, which is covered by Microsoft. So mm-hmm. it helps. <laughs> um, so, yeah, yeah. You know, we, we find the, the time. And, and try to make the best of it i guess is my summary for how do you rest <laughs> yeah. there
0: is rest in that so no good to hear <laughs> 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 okay so before we finish up um i'm quite interested in what your future plans are and where you see your career going next
2: yeah so I- it's often hard to say because you don't want to jinx stuff, but at the same time, you want to speak it in existence. So I'm kind of torn, but I would say that something that is really important to me right now is representation in tech. And for me, what that looks like is being a C-suite exec at a top tech company and If you think about the fact that another woman, another black girl can look up and see someone that looks like them um, sitting on these positions, that that in itself is impacting a lot of people. Um, And then the other angle is you realize how much, I don't use what power, but power you have in terms of shaping the future of tech when you're the one Mm -hmm. making those key decisions. Like, you can look at a company like Microsoft, like how much it has evolved since Satya took over. Mm -hmm. Um, And even just the work culture. So internally, you're changing people's lives by evolving and improving the work culture. But externally, you're changing people's lives by having a say in where a company like that is investing. Right? Mm -hmm. Like, now there's a lot more emphasis on inclusion on accessibility on representation um so i think that's that's the two-part reason for why i think that is uh a future ambition for me um but of course i, I have i have tons of interest um i think that i don't know when i'm going to leave my current role but I, I i imagine that something i do next would be probably the metaverse space because that's really popping off right now and Mm
1: -hmm.
2: I have had interest in that for a while Um, there's actually a startup in Vancouver called the Ethos Lab that I I guess work with from time to time and we are trying to build some kind of metaverse for youth especially unrepresented youth so it's a space that i'm very passionate about and i think that could be an interesting next move i'm also interested in like smart stuff smart technologies, smart Mm -hmm. cities uh smart water which i was like wow um so that does yeah i don't know i don't know what the next next thing is but like you said you know take a step and, and watch how the momentum drives you right so yeah, we'll see we'll see exciting it's exciting
1: and, and i just love that because yeah black women building the future is what i'm all about honestly
2: like i could talk about this metaverse stuff a lot but if you think about the fact that this is the future of the web you need these voices in right now
1: <laughs> <Yeah>.
2: <laughs> um but anyway I'm, I'm gonna just stop there i'm gonna just stop there no.
1: I know, just, just to kind of um, emphasize your point, I think the metaverse, when you think about it, mm-hmm. we live in a universe and the metaverse is a digital universe. Mm-hmm. So literally from the molecular level yep. to everything that will be built and experienced there, yep. you're building a new world. And yep. it's like, who mm-hmm. do you want building this world? Do you want one kind of person or do you want every kind of potential person represented in the building of that world so that the world actually is fit for purpose for everyone. Yeah, Exactly, exactly.
2: You hit that right on the head. Yep.
1: Okay. Well, I'd love to keep talking about that. (laughs) But um, I think we've come to the end of kind of our core questions. But just to say, it's been amazing speaking with you. Um, So inspired by by things you've said. So excited for you and your career kind of going forward so thank you so much thank you for taking the time to speak to us um last but not least i'm sure after this when people have listened to um, kind of the amazing things you've said they'll want to kind of connect with you obviously on a kind of professional level so what what platforms <laughs> um, are good to kind of connect <laughs> with you and follow you on on a professional
2: level, i <laughs> LinkedIn. <laughs> um, so the name is Jessica Udo, U um, D O, U for umbrella, D for dog, O for orange.
1: Well, Jessica, um, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us at the tech table. And thank yeah, you. And thank you for being our guest today. And yeah, best luck with the future. Thank you so much. Thank you thanks for joining us today and listening to this episode of a Suit at the tech table you can connect with us on our social media platforms just search at sisters in tech on twitter and instagram and check out our website www.sistersin.tech to see what we've got going on don't forget to leave us a review on itunes and we'll bring you the next episode soon